The virtue of contentment has been called a rare jewel, a rare jewel. I wonder if you would, if you were being honest with yourselves and with the Lord today, whether you would admit that it is a rare jewel in your life. How often truly are we content? I mean, I mean really truly content. Now, we're going to have to understand what it means to be content. There is a world today, there is even almost a secular view of contentment. There was certainly an ancient view of a kind of contentment that did not relate to the biblical virtue of contentment, at least not materially. But we're also going to have to recognize something about contentment that makes it so rare. Can I just put it like this? Contentment is not natural. No one was born content. And if you have any questions about that, come to my house on Stinson Boulevard and spend a day there. And you will see that no child was ever born content. No baby ever came out of the womb naturally content. The baby is the picture of discontentment, of not being able to subjugate perceived need to one's own personal outlook. If a baby needs something or perceives that it needs something, it cries. No baby is ever truly, lastingly content. And this is true through your childhood. And frankly, it is perhaps more than we would want to admit, true through our entire life, as we're going to kind of build off our message from last week. We naturally are products of our circumstances, our context. Our mood so often is shaped by how things are going in our surrounding life. We are not naturally content. And if we could just take that one thing tonight, that might be a blessing for some of us here. You are not naturally content, and I am not either. Now you say, okay, well, I think you're right about that. I think you've convinced me, but tell me how we know that biblically. Easy. Go to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11. Paul says, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have, what's the next word? I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. You will not be content unless you have learned to be content. You did not wake up one day and decide to be content. You learn to be content. Verse 12, Paul says, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am, what's the next word? instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. You are and I are not naturally content. We must learn to be content. Can I just therefore say this? Your personality type does not make you content. There is a kind of personality that is laid back, that is not a striver, that is not a go-getter, And that person might be deceived. It might be you tonight. It might be me. 
I tend to be a very laid-back kind of person. And it can be, I can, I can be deceived to think, well, just because I don't really want things or I don't feel really a craving for things, I'm content. No. No one is naturally content based on personality type or on anything else. You, like Paul, must learn to be content. You must be instructed in order to be content. And therefore, from Philippians chapter 4 tonight, what I'd like to invite us to is to a kind of class. And we're going to call it tonight a course on contentment. A course on contentment. And I hope you'll realize I'm not the teacher. God is the teacher. You are the student. And he has a particular classroom in which he has you situated right now. In which if you will let him, he will teach you to be content. And you will be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I have learned. I have been instructed in being content in whatever state I am in. Let's enter this course on contentment together tonight and ask what and where God has us in that course tonight. First of all, I want to talk about a priority. A priority. Now, what's going on here in Philippians chapter 4? Well, the whole book of, of Philippians is about a couple things. One of the main themes of Philippians is joy. Joy coming from the very beginning and continuing on through the book. Paul is encouraging these people to joy. In chapter 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. But underlying that theme on joy is the connection of what really truly gives us, uh, enables us to joy, which is a view that is set on the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Throughout this book, Paul is magnifying Christ. In chapter 1, he says, for me to live, for me to live, to, for me to die is gain, for me to live is Christ. If Christ is magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death, that's my goal. That's my aim. In chapter 2, he draws out the, the exaltation of Christ as a theological matter, that though Christ didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, he made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men, and he humbled himself even down to death. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him. The same idea comes through into chapter 3, where we see that Paul says, even though I had everything that a religionist would want, I was a Pharisee. I had all the righteousness that was available under the law. I have counted it all but dung. I have counted it as complete worthlessness that I might win Christ, that I might gain him and be found in him. And he sets before us in chapter 3 this wonderful encouragement to us. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling or the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. He's putting before us the exaltation of Christ and the joy of that, that we can have when we share that priority. But what's happening here in chapter 4 is that he's coming back to effectively give the Philippian church a thank you card. Now, I don't know if you were trained in this way. My mother trained us when we were children. If you receive a gift from someone, you sit down and write a thank you note to them. And Paul certainly was trained uh, whether trained by his mother or just trained in a spirit of gratitude. And here, he is, is expressing his gratitude for a gift that had been given. Look at with me at verse number 10. 
but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. It's been like a budding flower is kind of the picture here. Wherein ye were also careful. He said, you, you had a care for me, but you lacked opportunity. So Paul had for a period of time not received any gift, not received any sustenance from the people at Philippi. And Paul says, but I want to be clear. I'm not resentful. I know you cared about me, but you didn't have the opportunity. But now your care has met your opportunity. Your generosity has flourished toward me, and I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Notice then what he says in, 18, in verse 18. He says, but I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you in odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. So he has received some great generosity from the Philippians. Now, why would this be a, a source of great gratitude? Well, we're going to see a little bit more about this, but from a human perspective, where was Paul when he was writing the book of Philippians. He was under house arrest. He actually was chained to a Roman soldier. This was his means of, of, of imprisonment. You can see in chapter 1 when he says you, he talks about the, the bonds that, that he was in. And so this was his life, writing epistles, literally being physically chained to a soldier, completely being at the whim and the supply of the Roman government. And so here he is, he is in need. And now the Philippian church has communicated this wonderful, gracious gift toward him that he says, I am full and I abound. You have utterly filled up my need tank. Uh, I am now full. But notice what he says now in verse number 11. He says, not that I speak in respect of want. What's he saying here? He's saying, I rejoice that you sent me this gift, but I didn't do it because of my need. Now step back for a minute. When you are in a position of great need and you receive something, how much do you thank God that he supplied your need? Well, that's just natural, right? God, you provided my need. Thank you so much. Paul is saying to them, I didn't do it because my need got met. I didn't do it because I had a great lack that you supplied. And notice his, his, his logic. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. It's not that I was discontent before, and now because you filled me up with this great gift, now I'm rejoicing. No, Paul is saying to them, I was rejoicing before, and I'm rejoicing now. I was perfectly content before you sent the gift, and I'm perfectly content now that you sent it. You see the picture. This is what Paul is bringing out. For I have learned, he says, in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Now, let's get down to the subject of contentment. This course on contentment that Paul was in and that God wants you to be in. What does it mean to be content. What is the priority that God is putting before us? Well, let's start here. The very word that is translated here, content, is a very interesting word. You could perhaps translate that word that I have learned to be self-satisfied. 
The idea is to be satisfied in yourself. It is to say, I have enough in myself. I want you to think about that for just a moment. We, um, you maybe have heard of a book that has hit the New York Times bestseller list. It is replicated now in little wristbands and rings and other things. Uh, I know certainly in a ring, my daughter received one of them as a gift. It says, I am enough. Have you ever seen that? I am enough. And there's a sense in which this is a very unbiblical kind of thought, I am enough. It is suggesting a self-sufficiency that is incompatible with what the Bible reveals about us. And yet there is a sense here in which if you look at it from a particular perspective, it's actually communicating something similar to this. Paul is saying, I am or I have enough. And in reality, that is actually the heart of what contentment is. That one phrase, I have enough right now. I have enough right now. In fact, you see this in other places in Scripture where the word contentment is used or being content. There is a kind of cousin word to this one, and it literally just means enough. It means Sufficient. That word is used, for example, in Luke 3 and verse 14 when the soldiers come to John the Baptist and says, okay, you've called us to repent. What does that mean for us? And here's what John the Baptist says. Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. He says, do you know what it means? looks like to be a follower of the way, to, to, to show your repentance? Say, my wages are enough. Be content. Now, what would that do to the American workforce if truly today the American worker, every one of us said, I have enough with my wages right now? Hmm. Here's another. Hebrews 13 and verse 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. There's that word again, enough, sufficient. Do you know what he's saying? Do you know what you should be saying? The things that I have right now, it's enough. I have enough. Here's another example. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 8, Paul is, is telling his mentee Timothy, and having food and raiment, let us be therewith content, sufficient. I have enough. Now notice what he's saying. You have food and you have clothing. And you can say, I have enough. That's contentment. The same word, actually, that's used for content, being content, this cousin word to the one we read here in Philippians 4, is 2 Corinthians 12. And verse 9, And God, Paul says, after he has prayed for to the removal of this thorn in the flesh, God responds, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. My grace is content for thee, you have enough in my grace. That's the idea of the word. So let's just pause for a moment right here. The priority of God's course, his training in contentment for you, is that every single day of your life, you would wake up and say, I have enough today. I have enough stuff. I have enough money. I have enough of everything I need 
right now. And if you know that, if you can wake up every morning and say that with conviction, you have been through God's course on contentment. I have enough. Now, what a wonderful, um, in my mind, connection to one of our favorite hymns. Great is thy faithfulness. You remember what that passage from, from, from Lamentations chapter 3 Your mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. If you wake up morning after morning and say, God, your mercies are so much, I have enough right now. Are you content? Are you content? Do you really believe, do you really feel that you have enough right now? That's the priority of this course. Secondly, let's look at the perspective of this course. What is this course trying to give us vision into. Notice verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased. The idea there is to be brought very low, to be humbled. And I know how to abound. I know how to receive many things. Uh, everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now stop there for just a minute. Notice what Paul is saying. He's bringing out a paradox. I have enough even when I'm hungry. Hunger is the very essence of not having enough. I don't have enough food. Notice what else he says. I know I'm instructed both to abound and to suffer what? Need. Wait, you said, I thought you said, I have enough. That means I don't need. And Paul says, yeah, but I'll blow your mind. I have enough even when I do need. He said, okay, wait, what, what's going on? Do you see what Paul's saying here? How, how do we resolve this paradox? I have enough when I have not enough. And I have enough when I have more than enough. That's what it means to abound. You're, 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 you have a surplus. Say that again. I have enough when I don't have enough. And I have enough when I have more than enough. So what's he saying? Uh, to me, the resolution to this paradox is pretty simple. It's not about how much you have. Contentment has nothing to do about how much you have because you can be content when you don't have enough and you can be content when you have more than enough. It's not about how much you have. So what is it about? The principle that comes from this paradox he's trying to bring out in verse number 12 is this. Your contentment is not based on your circumstances. Now again, this is where we connect back to what we looked at last week from the book of James. A person who is a double-minded person, a person who does not know how to stand in faith is the one who's like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Whatever the circumstances dictate, that's what he or she feels and ultimately how they think. But not this person, not the contented person. The contented person is hungry and is suffering need 
and is content. And the person is abounding and overflowing, is wealthy in possessions, and they're utterly content. It's not about what they have. It's not about their circumstances. Contentment is about what I have in spite of my circumstances. It does not take my circumstances into account. And do you know this was actually what Paul could really say? I actually know how to be abased. Was there anyone in the New Testament record short of Jesus who was abased and humiliated and brought lower than Paul? When he is, in a, in a, in a fleshly sense, boasting about his ministry credentials to the Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and he's telling them, you want to know how many times I've been shipwrecked? You want to know how many lashes I've received? You want to hear about the time I was stoned? You want to hear about the time I was chased from town to town and persecuted for the cause of Christ? There probably was not a person in that New Testament record other than, of course, Jesus, who was humbled more than he was. He could absolutely say, I know how to be abased and to be brought completely low. I know how to hunger. I know how to suffer need. But Paul also could say, I know how to abound. I know how to be full. Paul, undoubtedly, in various times in his life, through the generosity of God's people, was feeling completely full in resources. I have no needs right now. He actually could say this. And that means, what I want to say is not just a paradox here, not just a principle, but there's a practice that Paul is making clear for us. If this is a course on contentment, friends, where's your classroom What is your classroom in learning contentment? Do you know, it'll never come from a book. It'll never come from an intellectual study. Do you know how you learn contentment? From living life. You learn contentment by practicing contentment in the circumstances you're in now. Now, I want us to just see one little hint on this. Will you notice with me in in the middle of verse 12... He says, everywhere and in all things, I am, what's that next word? Instructed. This is a very interesting word. It's not the normal Greek word for learned or taught. He easily could have said, I'm taught in everything to do this. That's not the word that he uses. It's a very intentional word choice. Do you know the word choice here that he uses is a word that actually was used in in the pagan religion of, 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 of history? Do you know what the literal idea is of this word? It is to be initiated into a mystery. It is to be initiated into a kind of secret club. That's how it would be used in a a pagan sense. Now, we don't have so many of these, but if you think of like a, a sorority or a fraternity in college and people are initiated into this little club. They have odd things to chant or say or humiliating things that they have to do. And now they have been initiated into the kind of secret club. Or you think of the the Freemasons. Um, I had an ancestor that was involved in the Freemasons. You may have as well. And the kind of secret rites and rituals that you do to get initiated in. You say, "What? what is Paul saying here? The idea here is that he has been instructed, he has been, he has been initiated into a secret. Do you know we could say rightly, biblically, there's a secret of contentment? 
There's a secret of contentment that you and I need to learn. The secret of, connect, of contentment is connected to the circumstances that I am in right now. What is the secret of contentment? Well, why could Paul say that I have enough when I don't have enough, and I have enough when I have more than enough? We said it's because his circumstances aren't what determines his contentment. So what does? I think we get a, get a clue if we go back to verse number 10. Go back to verse number 10. Paul says to begin, but I rejoiced, and what are the next three words? I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. I rejoiced in the Lord. Do you know those three words are the secret to contentment? I rejoiced in the Lord when I received your gift. In other words, he didn't say, I rejoiced in the gift. Because Paul didn't depend on circumstances whether he was content or not. He did not even say, I rejoice in you for your gift. Because his content was not based on the people surrounding him. What was his contentment rooted in? In the Lord. In the same way, earlier in this chapter, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I would say rejoice. What's the secret of your joy? It's the same secret of your contentment. It better not be based in your circumstances. It better be based in your Savior. It better be based in God's grace. Now you say, what does this actually mean? In the real life of your circumstances right now, God is showing you, he's teaching you that he has given you enough. I have enough because God has given me enough. And when you master that course, you can be content. I have enough because God has given me enough. Now this is where we tie in again to what we talked about last week with faith, with trust, And to give you an example, I I was thinking about it from this perspective. I want you to imagine that you were going into a doctor for the very first time. You weren't even sure how good the credentials of this doctor were. You had no idea. You'd see no reviews for them online. When you were talking to them, they didn't seem sure about themselves. You noticed that when you were telling them their symptoms, they were suspiciously typing something in that you thought might be Google. I kid you not, I went to a doctor once, and I was telling him about my symptoms, and he was literally looking it up on Google. He was looking up, maybe he was just looking up pictures of it on Google, I don't really know, but it, it, it took a little bit out of my trust, maybe a little out of the wind, out of the sails, when the doctor is going to Google. But, I want you to imagine that kind of doctor, when that doctor prescribes you something for your condition, your natural response will be to say, not sure I have enough might want a second opinion, right? Have you, ever seen, have you ever had a doctor like that? But now I want you to imagine the doctor that you have had for your entire life who has never led you wrong, who has always been, been, been very sharp and getting to the diagnosis and it prescribing you the medicine exactly you need, what you need. And I want you to imagine now how you relate to that doctor when he or she says, I know exactly what your problem is and here's your prescription. Do you know what you and I do? We go home and we take the medicine without a second thought about whether we have enough. We say, I have enough. 
I have enough because the doctor told me I did. And in the same way, your contentment reveals something about your trust in God. When your discontentment says, God, I don't think I have enough, what you are saying to the divine providence is you're saying, I'm not really sure you're right when you say I have enough. That's what you're saying. You are manifesting an unbelief in the providence of God to say, who are you going to trust? What you think you need or what I think you need? Again, go back to that simple phrase. I have enough because he has given me enough. And if you can stand in faith on that simple phrase, you will understand contentment in a greater way. Now, notice what Paul says then if you just look ahead to verse 19. Again, I think there's an interesting connection here. Paul says, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He's very interesting. Because we just learned that Paul said, I'm content even when I suffer need. But my God will supply all your needs. So, so what is he saying? That you will never go without something that you think you need? No. Paul suffered need. What's he saying? God will always give you what you need to be content. God will always give you what you need in his divine providence to provide actually what he has determined you need. I have enough because he has given me enough. Are you content? Are you content that exactly the things that you have in your life right now are what he has given? Maybe you're saying, I don't know that I have what I need right now, and I think it's my fault. I blew it. It's not God's fault, Pastor. I'm not saying that I, I'm blaming God for this, but I'm seeing that I have need for things, and I think it's my fault or someone else's fault. If only I hadn't made that mistake, if only I had done that or said yes to that or said no to that, then I would have what I need. It's my fault. It's not God's fault. No. Do you think God's providence is enough to account for your mistakes? Is it? Yes, it is. Because your God and my God works all things together for good to them that love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. That means our mistakes, too. That means our failures. That means our sins. That means the person who rejects God's counsel and marries an unbeliever. That means the person who rejects God's counsel in a particular way and takes this path or accepts that job or make, falls into that area of sin. Oh, there may be consequences for that, but God has supplied their need. And they can say that the divine providence is enough. I have enough because he has given me enough. The priority, I have enough. The perspective, he has given me enough. And the persuasion, finally the persuasion. Will you look with me now at verse 13? I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I joked this morning, this is one of the favorite verses of athletes. Putting it on their eye black. You know, there's one athlete um, who uh, is, is an open Christian, and that reference is placed on his sneakers. 
the shoe company literally put 413 into his sneakers. I can do all things. Friends, in context, this verse has nothing to do with how good a shooter you are. It has nothing to do with, with kind of athletic self-performance. It has nothing to do with that. What does it have everything to do with? It has everything to do with you being content. Listen to what Paul's saying. I have enough even when I don't have enough. Why? Through Christ who strengthens me. I am convinced that I have enough even when I have more than enough. Through what? Through him who strengthens me. Now, I want us to notice this, and this is very important. When we say that I can do all things, I can be content in every circumstance of life through Christ which strengthens me, how does Christ strengthen us to be content? Here's the first thing that he does. First of all, he sets your value system. Christ sets your value system. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, notice that Paul says there are two dangers to contentment. The first danger is that when you don't have enough. And the second danger is when you have more than enough. And friends, let's be honest today. Can we just be honest? I don't want to minimize any struggle or any difficulty uh, in terms of money or other things that you're going through right now. But wouldn't you say for virtually every single one of us, our problem is in the second of those categories, not the first. When you compare ourselves and our standard of living to the Apostle Paul, to our Savior Jesus, to the first century church, and to virtually every age of Christians that has come in, 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 uh, across history, including our brothers and sisters around the world, we are incomparably wealthy. Incomparably wealthy. Our greatest struggle with contentment, I trust, will not be having too little. Our greatest struggle with contentment will be having too much or having more than enough. Paul says, I know how to be content even when I have too much. You say, that doesn't make any sense. How, how, how can we have a greater struggle when we have more than enough when, than when we have less than enough? Have you ever given a child a sip of something really sweet? Have you ever had a, a, a glass of like Sprite and you've given it to your young child and then you've taken it away and say, here's the water Drink the rest of the water now. What does that little brat say? <laughs> no, I like the Sprite, thanks. I'll take that. Do you know it's entirely different when the only thing a child drinks is water? They don't want the Sprite. They're content with the water. The water's good enough. But give them Sprite, and what do they want? They only want Sprite. They don't want the water anymore. And in the same way, our struggle with contentment is when, in, is when we have more than enough our eyes are only attuned to the things that we don't have despite having more than enough. And we focus on everything we don't have. This is why Proverbs says in that very wise counsel, hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. Do you know the greatest example of this is at the very beginning, at the creation. Adam and Eve had everything they had far more than enough for their contentment. And what did their discontentment say? But there's one tree I can't have. And they could not rest content in knowing that in all their plenty, there was one thing they couldn't have. And you know, friends, it's the same thing 
Our televisions and our radios and our, and, our, and our targeted ads online are repeating a mantra to you over and over again. It doesn't matter how much you have in the bank account. There's still things you don't have and you need. And if you allow that to come in to your life, into your experience, you're going to be discontent no matter how much money is in your bank account, no matter how much of a beautiful house you have, no matter how many of the creature comforts of life, you're going to be more discontent than the person who has virtually nothing and has learned to accept it. Wherever you are, wherever you are, Paul says, it's not about your circumstances. It's about whether he has given you enough and the persuasion about the value system that he has given you. Can you just go back one chapter to to Philippians chapter 3? It's important that we see this, I think, to understand how Jesus had set Paul's value system for him. Notice verse 7. Paul has gone through everything that was so valuable to any religionist, to any moralist, to any religious person trying to work his way to heaven. And he says, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. All things. Do you know how you and I need to learn contentment? That you can look at everything you have and say it's loss. It's loss compared to what I want to learn about Jesus Christ. When your value is found in the matchless worth of Jesus Christ and not in the possessions or the things that you have, you have been empowered to be content. Are you content? Has Jesus shaped your value system? Do you remember what he said to his disciples? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you? You want to be content? Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the excellency of the knowledge of God, and count what you have, your possessions, to be loss for the surpassing worth of Christ. Friends, this means not only we are strengthened when he sets our values, we're strengthened when he shapes our thinking. He shapes our thinking. You say, what do you mean by this? Well, let's go back. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. You know what he was saying there? That word, verse 13, I can do all things. The idea of that very word, I can do, is I am strong. I am strong for all things. It means that in the particular moment of time, Jesus, by his strength, by setting your value system, is directing your thinking to be strong, to be settled to be stabilized. Friends, do you know a contented person is utterly the most free person, the most liberated person? Do you know it is freeing when it comes to bonus season at your work and you really couldn't care less whether you got a bonus or not? Because your view is, I have enough right now. I have enough. Now, does that mean you never pursue an elevation in salary or you, per, you never pursue any advance in life? No. 
Oh, it doesn't mean that. We're not Stoics. You see, the Stoics focused on this issue of contentment in their own way. They talked about being self-sufficient, but do you know what it came from from them? It came from this kind of hardened shell that says, I am enough, I have enough, you can't hurt me, no one can hurt me. And that's not, that's not the biblical nature of contentment. The biblical nature of contentment isn't rooted in having a strong shell that no, nothing can penetrate. The biblical value of contentment is being rooted in him and in his value. That means that you are liberated to do everything, including at work, for the glory of God. And if that means a bonus comes your way, you say, well, thank you, God. I have enough with this to still be content and to do what you want with that. But it also frees you not to grasp after something that you don't need unless God tells you you need it. I have enough because he has given me enough and he will give me enough for whatever I need. May we in incorporate the strength of thinking that has aligned our value system with his and it's able just to say, I have enough and I'm going to pursue uh, I'm going to pursue your calling, whatever it is, as excellently and as fully and as completely as I can, and I'm going to trust you to give me exactly what you need. He, he sets our value system. He shapes our thinking. And utterly, he supplies himself. He supplies himself. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Friends, what is ultimately the secret of contentment? The secret of contentment is I have enough because he has given me enough. And friend, he is enough. He is enough. What this is saying is it doesn't matter how impoverished you are, he's enough. It doesn't matter how much of this world's riches you have, he is enough with it or without it. And for you to be strengthened in Christ and through Christ is for you truly to have been persuaded, you truly to have been convinced that whatever circumstance in life you're facing, he has given you enough, and even more than that, he is enough right now. Are you content? Are you utterly convinced that you have enough right now with nothing else? You have enough. Are you utterly convinced that he has given you enough? And are you utterly convinced that he is enough no matter what you do have, no matter what you don't have? When we come to that conviction, to that persuasion rooted in faith, We've been through God's course on contentment. We can say with Paul, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Let's be content.